Hello, Social Campus listeners. Let me ask you a question. How much does your identity influence how you receive and accept information? What relationships do you consider more reliable when it comes to topics of public health and policy? One of the sensitive topics during the global pandemic was vaccinations. For some, being vaccinated was associated with a political ideology. If you received the COVID-19 vaccine, it meant that you were a sheeple and supported medical apartheid. But if you didn't, it meant that you were a patriot and against the pharmaceutical mafia. In today's episode, we assess anti-vaccine attitudes and behaviors from a sociological perspective and try to understand how our identity and our loved ones can influence vaccine perspectives. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Social Chemist Podcast. I'm your host, Nelson. And on today's episode, we are joined by Matthew Fasciani, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Notre Dame in the Computer Science and Engineering Department. His research includes media literacy, social networks, political polarization, and misinformation. On today's episode, we discuss his 2023 literature review, Political Network Composition Predicts Vaccine Attitudes a research article that explores how different relationships influence our attitudes towards vaccines and what our attitudes towards vaccination predict public health behaviors. We also dive a little bit into his book titled Misguided, where misinformation starts, how it spreads, and what to do about it. Matthew, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Nelson. It's great to be here. Matthew, before we begin, I want to ask you how you're enjoying thread because i know you're very active on that website and it's funny because um for the longest time i was reluctant into joining twitter and the day that i did it was like 12 a.m right i wake up the next morning and then threads introduced and then everyone's leaving (laughs) on twitter and i i was like the best way to describe it was like the Pablo Escobar meme of him just like standing on a pool by himself and sitting, just, you know, just <laughs> watching everyone leave. So my question is, how have you enjoyed Thread and how much of a difference is it compared to Twitter now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm really enjoying Threads. Uh, as you can see, I'm active on there. And it, it has been interesting uh, seeing the whole social media landscape change this past couple years or really the last year with twitter and x um so it's funny you joined twitter right <laughs> right as, as it was destructing um i've been on twitter since 2012. it was my favorite social media platform for a long time uh, i used it to connect with a lot of scientists and academics and journalists and it was a very positive experience it was, like even though there was some trolling some annoying people on there like that's common with any social media for the most part uh it was very positive 
And that definitely changed when Elon took over and made some huge platform changes. The big one was removing verification and then having the paid blue checks, which since he galvanized a certain group of people, basically a lot of his fans and supporters were more likely to buy those blue checks and it's kind of dominated all the, the news feeds and replies. Uh, so that really changed the landscape. Just the whole culture and vibe really changed on Twitter uh, this past year. Uh, and it's only gotten worse, like with removing the headlines and and trying to, you know, again, the blue checks, which are some of the worst accounts on there are now monetized to share information. So it's just a very, very difficult place to be uh, if you're not into trolling people. It seems like it's very much uh, incentivized to spread toxicity. So I really like because it's basically the opposite of that. Uh, it's a much, much more positive vibe. It seems like it really attracted a lot of people who were against the toxicity of Twitter. So they were more likely to join threads. Um, so I've really enjoyed that culture of kindness and charitability that seemed to be lacking on social media for a long time. And I've been waiting for something like this to happen. Like I've tried uh, Mastodon, uh, Blue Sky, uh, the post, like I've tried all the Twitter alternatives this past year, and I never really spent that much time on any of them because I didn't see any of them as really having long-term potential. Um, I thought Blue Sky might, but since it's been invite only for so long, I kind of lost um, my faith in that being a, uh, so much of a Twitter alternative. So when Threads came with all the meta support, I was like, all right, this is probably going to stick around for a while. And I decided to go all in. And now that's really my main social media for for posting uh, now. You describe how Thread is different from other social media platforms that you tried. Where do you think Twitter will be in the next, let's say, maybe three years? Do you think it's, it's still going to exist as a platform? Will it have any influence? Because even though it's accessible of this information, some people still use it. Mm -hmm. um, I see more activity still on Twitter from certain academics. So, like, will Twitter survive what it's going through right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, if we look at the trends for the past few months, we do see Twitter activity declining from a few metrics. Um, and I know from just anecdotally the people I follow have already left there are you're right there are some big scientists on there who still want to try to share good information on a, a toxic platform and try to figure well maybe if i can just change a few minds it's all worth it it's hard to have faith that twitter will be around in a meaningful capacity in three years i think it'll still maybe exist um but it just might have less and less influence as more and more people gravitate towards threads or blue sky or mastodon there's just so many more alternative alternative sites than there were just a year ago. Like there's just a lot more community and different websites. So I think more and more people are going to leave Twitter. Um, but I, I think it will still exist. It just will become more insular and more niche as more people leave the site who are not happy with the direction it's going. I'm curious to know if you think Thread will be ready for this um, migration of trolls because as Twitter loses its followers, trolls will lose the people that they're trying to upset. And then 
will probably try to migrate to Thread. You think that platform? And I know, I know, I'm asking you just as an outsider, but you think it's they're ready for for that challenge when it comes? Because I could see something like that kind of happening. Like you mentioned before, Twitter was a place of you know where academics would share articles and information. Um, we're currently right now Thread platform. That's where we're at, but that could change very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely can change. I mean, the, the tough thing about social media is it's it's so fast. Uh, like whenever I study it and, and I write about it, it's like it's a lot of things I write are outdated, you know, a year later. That's just how it is trying to <laughs> research in this area. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely going to be more of a challenge as more people go on the platform. Um, already, you know, I see a little bit more trolling now than just a couple months ago. Uh, so I think that's inevitable. There's going to be more trolls. I do think Threads is taking a more thoughtful approach to moderation. Um, I do think Meta and Facebook learned a few lessons from how they handled uh, misinformation and harassment on Facebook. So it seems like they're trying to be a little more cautious and slow, which I really appreciate. Uh, um, I know some people I see on the platform are kind of annoyed by how slow the features are uh, coming out, but I think they're doing a great job as far as, you know, still introducing features um, at a regular pace, but trying to do so in a way that's uh, building with a thoughtful foundation. So I'm optimistic about it, but, you know, a year from now, who knows, maybe I'll be completely wrong and <laughs> threads completely fizzles out. I hope not, but I am optimistic about it. Yeah, that's the nature of what we study. Misinformation just evolves so rapidly. And with the introduction of AI, I mean, Mm-hmm. Who knows what the conversation is going to look like a year from now. Right. So uh, I want to uh, move on to your paper. Now you cover sure. vaccine behaviors. Mm-hmm. And before we go into that, I'm curious to know if you can offer some insight as a sociologist on how the anti-vaccine movement has evolved or has changed, really. So prior to the pandemic, the anti-vaccine movement was identified as a left-wing conspiracy theory. Much of this was because left-wing conspiracy theories are often distrustful of corporations. We see this with the GMO conspiracy theory of being distrustful of Monsanto. Um, we describe right-wing conspiracy theories. They are distrustful of governments. But that came a lot with the uh, anti-vaccine movement where uh, it's been hijacked by the far right. I w- wonder if you have any thoughts on why that might be the case. How did this transition from a left-wing narrative of a plot by corporations get you know, adopted by the far right so effectively? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we look at survey data from like 2010, 2012, and we ask people about vaccine attitudes, partisanship usually wasn't a significant factor. So you couldn't predict someone's vaccine attitudes if they were a Democrat or Republican in like 2012. And the only thing that was predictive was extremism. So both the extreme right and extreme left participants in these surveys were more likely to be anti-vaccine. So it's it's kind of difficult to even categorize it explicitly as a left-wing conspiracy theory back then when we look at some of the survey data, but you're right that a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of left-wing public figures that were more anti-vaccine. 
you know, RFK Jr., <laughs> uh, who's now running for president. Uh, before, he was more of a left-wing figure um, who was anti-vaccine. Uh, and there was other celebrities and other people. So it kind of got that narrative that, okay, this is more kind of a left, left-wing left woo or anti-corporation stance. And what's been really frustrating is, is to see that uh, be more mainstream as far as a, a partisan uh, topic and there's there was some evidence that this was coming even before COVID. So there was a paper published last year looking at uh, childhood vaccine bills, and even in the last ten years, there started to be a partisan split between Republicans and Democrats, with Republican Republicans being more likely to be against child um, vaccine mandates than uh, Democrats. So there is a bit of a different take on the public health ideology between Democrats and Republicans that was kind of in the background before we even got to COVID. And Republicans had a very different stance on on mandates, but also just how to handle public health issues um, and how much trust there are in these scientific institutions. And that's really been another thing we're starting to see this split is the trust in the institutions is much lower on the right than it is the left. Um, although it's been declining for everyone the last 10 years or so. So we see some of these kind of background components before COVID. And then, as you mentioned, once COVID hit, it just really exploded this partisanship of, of vaccines and public health. And now it's very much explicitly a partisan issue where if you are Republican, you're much more likely to be anti-vaccine or have more anti-vaccine attitudes than a Democrat and again, this wasn't the case just 10 years ago when we did surveys. So that's something I found in my research, too, is it wasn't just Republicans were more anti-COVID vaccine. They're now more anti-general vaccine. And that's definitely a big problem. Who do you think influenced this um, perspective on the right? And I'm, I'm asking you, a, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because on one part, Politicians want to satisfy their constituents, and so whatever narrative they're going with, that's what they're that's what they're going to push. At the same time, you see these influence influential um, figures in politics that create this narrative and can create this um this polarization of you know Democrats are bad and um, Republicans are good, and since Rep since more Democrats are in line with the CDC and the World Health Organization that whatever policies they believe in, those are bad. So to go back to the question, where do you think the influence came from when it comes to this anti-vaccine narrative? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, there's definitely a lot of factors involved, uh, all kind of mixing together. Uh, I think we can trace it with COVID at least. It, it is kind of both... Uh, both the constituents and the elites, um, the Republican elites or politicians, um, kind of interacting with each other and responding to what gains traction. Um, I think there was a lot of unhappiness uh, with how the government handled COVID-19. Some of it justified uh, as far as confusing messaging, for example. So when you see this kind of unhappiness or distrust, you can capitalize on that and really just galvanize your support. And again, more of it was on the right than the left. 
So that stemmed from, you know, uh, unhappiness with uh, social distancing mandates or mask mandates. And this is something I was worried about back when the masking was such a polarized issue. I'm like, well, if we can't agree on masking, I think this is probably going to be a big issue with the vaccines. And unfortunately, I was right about that. Uh, And it's just so frustrating that even though we, you know, at the beginning, we all wanted to get a vaccine and just get through this pandemic as soon as we could. And then once there was this distrust and this polarization around the concept of a vaccine, we see the, the very different attitudes between Republicans and Democrats, even though we know through all of this data that the vaccines help, there's still a lot of people who didn't want to get it purely because of disinformation and seeing these Republican politicians openly question the vaccine, even though many of them got the vaccine, right? I mean, that's the frustrating thing is you see um, people speak against the vaccine, like these Fox News hosts, but then they'll get the the vaccine themselves. Um, So yeah, a lot of factors going on there. um, But I do think we can it's kind of that it stems from a lot of that distrust and they capitalized on that and really used vaccines as a, as an issue to galvanize support. In your article, you, you point out something interesting, you know, at face value, you know, as we're talking, one can get the the image that if you're a Democrat, you are going to get the, the vaccine. And if you're a Republican who, you know, has negative attitudes towards vaccination that you are more likely not to get that vax, the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine. But that's Mm. not necessarily true. You know, you write that um, just because you have certain attitudes does not reflect your behavior. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. Um, So in my study, uh, over 60% of the Republicans already received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, And when I looked at networks, people who had more Republicans in their personal network, it was not predictive of actually getting the COVID-19 vaccine, because again, like most Republicans got it. So when we're looking at beliefs versus behavior, it can be really tricky sometimes. And maybe people felt negatively about the vaccine, but they wanted to get it for work or for family, or by expressing a negative attitude towards the vaccine, they can still support their partisan identity, but practically they they know that maybe the vaccine is still a good thing. So there's a lot of, uh, it gets really complex when you look at beliefs versus behavior, and a lot of social scientists try to tease this out, and it, and it's, it's very context-dependent, but for, for my work, yeah, I, I definitely found that there's a strong effect of having more Republicans in your network predicting more negative vaccine attitudes, but it didn't have an impact on actually getting the vaccine. So in one way, it's encouraging that people still got the vaccine, but again, it, it is discouraging that it's so politicized that maybe in the future for other vaccines or other pandemics, we may see that not be the case if it keeps being so politicized. I'm thinking about the compound variable that might have influenced the you know Republicans getting vaccinated. And do you think the mandates that were implemented, do you think that played a role in this 
the higher percentage of Republicans getting the vaccine? Yeah, I think it had some effect. Um, I mean, it was probably certainly easier for a lot of people uh, to get vaccinated versus, I mean, the alternative is you didn't really have to get the vaccine. You just have to test regularly. That was often the the case was, all right, so if you don't get the vaccine, then you need to get a COVID test like every two weeks or something. So maybe people just thought it was easier just to get the vaccine, even though the people they follow online didn't like it. Um, so I do think the mandates may have had an issue. And, you know, maybe people were conflicted on some level. Maybe they weren't explicitly anti-vaccine, but then they heard all the Republican friends talk negatively about it. So they decided to get it, but they still voiced how they didn't like it. Um, <laughs> there could be could be multiple factors for sure. Yeah, you know, I think that attitudes are not reflective of behavior because I remember when the vaccines were first initiated, I knew people that wanted to get vaccinated, but didn't really have the time to go to their local, you know, like pharmacy or wherever. And so that was their their reasoning why not to get the vaccine. And so that, you know, we have to take mm-hmm. into consideration, you know, a multitude of factors, uh, mandates, accessibility to, to vaccines and, and stuff like that. So it's something very important to to consider when we look at attitudes and behaviors on vaccinations. Uh, you also in your paper talk about, you talk about relationships and how mm-hmm. relationships can influence our attitude towards vaccinations. Uh, what relationships did you find were more influential in determining how a person perceives vaccines? Yeah, so this is this is an interesting part of the paper that we wanted to look at um, types of relationships and if any type of relationship was more predictive of uh, vaccine attitudes. So if your friends and family had gotten the vaccine or were Democrats and Republicans, does that matter more for someone who's not friends and family, just someone you know from from work or a neighbor or, or more of an online acquaintance perhaps? And it's interesting because there's kind of two ways to think about this. You can think about, oh, well, you're going to be more persuaded by your friends and family since they're closer to you. Or maybe those attitudes are already baked in. So if you have a Republican family member who you disagree with or a Democrat family member who you disagree with, maybe you already know their perspective and their their perspective isn't going to impact how you feel about the vaccine. Or maybe they would. So what we found is actually the non-friends and family members, so people who identified uh, as just an acquaintance or an other person who is meaningful to them in some way, but was listed as not friends or family. Having more of those types of people, uh, we call them non-kin others. That's the, the jargon term for it. Um, so more of these non-kin others who were unvaccinated and Republican, who you identified in your network, that was most predictive of having the most negative anti-vaccine views. So I thought that was uh, interesting that it wasn't having closer ties that were anti-vaccine or Republican that were more predictive of having anti-vaccine views. It was having these more distant ties or these other types of relationships, again, that could be like neighbors or coworkers or someone you know online. Uh, These types of relationships, if you had more of those who were 
unvaccinated and Republican, you were especially likely to have negative views towards the vaccine. I'm thinking about online relationships, right? Because when we mm-hmm. think of like friends, we I have friends that I never met in person, but uh, I have online from, you know, game the gaming um community. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that has an influence because on social media, you tend to follow people that share the same values as you for the most part. And I wonder if that has any role, do you, if you think, in how people perceive or get influenced by by their behaviors. Like if, if social media ha- has a role in that, I don't know if, if I made sense in mm-hmm. that question. Yeah, I think so. I think people do seek out communities that affirm their identities and their beliefs. So that's that was my guess for it. Like, if you know, I'd have to do more research on this to confirm that. But what I'm thinking is online communities play a large role in, you know, maybe someone you don't even really consider them a friend, but you interact with them a lot online and they share your views and having more people like that in your networks uh, would be more predictive of your vaccine attitudes. You, you might be having uh, stronger political beliefs if you have a lot of very politicized people in your networks that you follow online. Um, and then it gets kind of tricky of like, again, like what comes first following those people or do they make you more uh, radicalized? And it's, it's kind of difficult to tease out that relationship. Um, but we do see that when you have more of that uh, homogeneous network online, uh, it is more predictive of having stronger political attitudes. I want to touch upon, you know, an interesting topic that I love having with other behavioral scientists, and that's on government regulations of social media. Now, when it comes to this topic, I'm, I'm often skeptical of the effectiveness of how governments can regulate social media because it's a lot harder to what's the word i'm looking for remove political misinformation it's a lot harder to justify that than it is to justify removing medical misinformation and from a conspiratorial standpoint let's use one alex jones for example right when alex jones was removed from social media the narrative that he used was that this is proof that the government wants to silence me and that what I'm saying has truth to it, which is why they're afraid of what I have to say. And that's an effective narrative. That, that's, um, that's how people build followers. Uh, Robert Malone uses it. Peter McCullough, a whole bunch of people that are in the conspiratorial community use this narrative. And so at the same time, you know, how do you enforce social media platforms to to remove this information because as you know we mentioned earlier in the introduction to this to our discussion there's so many different platforms right we have you know mm-hmm. we have thread facebook instagram and then you go down you know the rabbit hole you're entering rumble uh, truth social there's a lot of platforms where people can go and find these narratives so though you you can regulate facebook are you willing to, as the government, are you willing to do the same thing for truth social? And so I go back to a conversation that I had with Dr. Benjamin Dow uh, about a year ago. Perhaps it's not up to the government to regulate social media. Perhaps it should be these platforms that should self-regulate themselves. Now, I know that the counter argument to that is that, well, these platforms don't really care about um, protecting uh, our democracy or to prevent misinformation, what they're really interested is in 
creating engagement, having people, you know, click on whatever. But we have power as consumers. I think you're a perfect example of this. You were on Twitter and at a certain point, Elon Musk bought Twitter. And then you decided, look, this is not where I want to be. You made a conscious decision to move from Twitter or, you know, X to Thread. And so maybe we as the consumers have the power to incentivize these um, corporations or these social media platforms to, you know, remove this information because we as the consumers don't want that. And the way that we do that is by creating, you know, educated online consumers. And so I wanted to see where you stand on this discussion. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a big question for sure. Uh, there's a lot of things to consider. Um, I agree with you that us, the consumer, we have a lot of power in what we do. And yeah, by leaving Twitter uh, or X, we are showing that we don't like these platform changes and we're reducing the market share. And, you know, it's interesting that surveys have found most people like content moderation. So there's this discussion of like, you know, you know, the, the making making a, a free for all type of social media is something most people don't like. So you're there's always going to be different types of social media that are unregulated, um, unmoderated, and they're going to attract certain groups of people. But that's a small group of people, and that's fine if they want to have that certain type of social media. They can go off and have just whatever types of conversations they want. But as far as like bigger mainstream platforms uh, like Threads or Facebook, I do think there is now an incentive for them to at least try to pay attention to it. You're right. They, they care about money and uh, the attention economy more than anything else. But because of all the negative PR Facebook got surrounding the 2016 election and other misinformation campaigns, disinformation campaigns, um, I do think they're more mindful of that. And we see that again with Threads is... It, it appears like they're at least trying now because they realize, okay, we're going to get a bunch of pushback if we just have a lot of unhinged conspiracy theories spread wildly on our platform. So there is this market incentive to actually try to have some moderation. And again, most people like some sort of moderation. So the issue is then kind of this deciding where those lines are. And that's always going to be tricky. It's always going to be moving targets and social media platforms are never going to do it perfectly. And ultimately, again, it's up to the consumer to decide, are they doing it well enough for me to remain on this platform or am I going to go somewhere else? For me, like you said, I, I decided Twitter was changing in a way I didn't like. Uh, I like the direction Threads is going, so that's how I spend my time. Threads now has my attention economy dollars you know, built in their system because they did a better job uh, for me. I do think there are some interesting evidence-based approaches that could be implemented that don't necessarily uh, determine what people can post or not post. So there's been some discussion of the concept of friction on social media websites. So this idea of slowing down how viral a post can spread. And we know that misinformation spreads faster than uh, true information. Uh, more sensationalism or extremism that gets engagement. So if we just slow everything a little bit down, maybe you can help out the helps slow the spread of misinformation and sensationalism uh, on platforms and just get 
turn down the heat a little bit. And I think Threads is doing that with their algorithm. So I think they're doing a good job. It, it seems like a pretty good example of, of what that would look like. So these kinds of platform changes that that change how information spreads overall, that way you're not really picking and choosing what can be seen, what cannot be seen. I think that's a pretty good way to go about it. There's also some ideas about trying to reduce even like the amount of time people spend on social media. So there is some discussion about on Instagram, whenever you're scrolling, if you're scrolling for like over an hour, uh, the the scrolling you're doing will eventually take longer and longer. So it's not even perceptible at first, but it's just like it takes a fraction of a second more to scroll from one post to the other. And it keeps increasing to the point where it's so slow that eventually you put down your phone. So like things like that, that are more about just like getting people less addicted to social media, I think could be helpful. Again, the companies have very little incentive to do that since Mm -hmm. they get more money. Um, But maybe there can be some discussions about some compromises there. So we don't have so much extremism and so many people just addicted to their phones and their computers, and they're just always having that in front of their face. So I think there's a couple interesting solutions that don't even have to dive into what uh, is allowed on the platform or not. But like I said, like people are going to ultimately decide where they want to go. I'm looking forward to, you know, this friction concept that you're talking about. Cause you know, I, I'm on Instagram way too much. And so, uh, you know, if Instagram is listening, please add that. <laughs> but to go back to, to your earlier comment about how people do want moderation. I, you know, I think that's, that's, uh, it's something that I, I didn't think about because perhaps it's because I follow a lot of the far right on my social media network to see what's going on. That it, it appears that it's a 50-50 battle between corporations that are trying to you know, censor the right compared to, you know, people that want to, you know, have this liberty of speech. But yeah, it, it's very interesting. And we'll see how how social media will, will handle this situation. And I think for the most part, we're heading up the right direction. And we, we have, you know, you mentioned that there is support for that. So that's great news for, for people that want to be in a platform where it's not filled with, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, tropes or just disinformation conspiracy theories. And that's great for me to hear. So I'm, I'm glad to hear about that. Let's talk about your, your book, you know, titled Misguided Where Misinformation Starts, How It Spreads, and What to Do About It. What motivated you to to write this book? Yeah, yeah. So this is the the first book I ever uh, decided to try to write. Um, I finished my dissertation on political polarization right as the pandemic started. So I graduated from graduate school uh, the summer of 2020. So I really was in the trenches of seeing COVID um, relate to my work, unfortunately. And it's something that's interesting because I never really took a really strong uh, public health angle on my work previously. But once COVID hit, I really just immediately saw the connection. I'm like, oh, well, obviously I should (laughs) start looking at this more. Um, So that allowed me to find this uh, position at Vanderbilt University, where I could work in the medicine health society department and study health misinformation, vaccines, a lot of different things. 
um, and start trying to write this book. And yeah, I mean, really, I just I saw so much public interest and misinformation and health misinformation and how my work and background related to it. So honestly, I just figured, well, maybe I'll try to write a book. Like I always interested, I've always been interested in science communication, science outreach. So I thought my work could be useful in book format for a broader audience. And I didn't know anything about writing a book at the time. I didn't know if I could publish it with any reputable publisher. Like I was just out of grad school. Um, so I was even thinking about like self-publishing something and I don't know. I was just like investigating all the potential options, but I decided to send my uh, proposal, my book proposal to uh, like 20 different uh, academic publishers, just cold emails. I didn't have any relationships with any of these, these publishers or any of the people. And I actually got a few hits just from cold emails. People said, Oh, that's really interesting. This looks really good. Um, They were excited about the idea. And uh, Columbia University Press was the one that gave me my contract. So they just went with it. So it was really cool. Like I, very unexpected, um, very grateful that happened. And yeah, I, I wrote the book mostly during my time at, at Vanderbilt. I finished it up um, really at the end of my time. So the end, uh, middle of 2022, um, end of t- 2022 is kind of when I finished writing a lot of it. I'm hoping it's coming out early next year. It takes so long. It's one thing I learned is it's great that academic books are peer reviewed. So like there's experts that read my book and, you know, tell me what's wrong about it, but it takes a lot longer for it to finally get published. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, pros and cons on that. Uh, Uh, But uh, yeah, so that's kind of the background how I got into my book is, and then hopefully, yeah, we finally be out uh, early next year. What would you want the reader to take away from reading your book? You know, what what's the message? Yeah, so the main high level message is how our identities influence our susceptibility to misinformation and how we're all vulnerable to misinformation because we're all social creatures. We have these identities that give us meaning and allow us to connect with communities and that's great for many different things. Like I mentioned, like we can connect with different people. We can find communities of people that share these identities and it helps us navigate our social worlds. But we also have a motivation to protect our identities because identities gives us a sense of self-esteem. So because we want to support our identities and protect our identities, we may be likely to interpret information in a certain way that's consistent with our identities. So The obvious example that I talk about a lot in my book is political identities. So when we have a political identity, we're much more motivated to try to protect that identity and interpret information in a way that's consistent with the values of that identity or makes that identity look good or makes the opposing identity look bad. So I'd really like people to reflect on how their identities can influence their information processing, um, how this can be uh, exacerbated by the networks we have. So, you know, my work looks at how networks can predict the attitudes and a lot of different things. So we already have these identity processes going on. And then once we add networks into the mix, it can make it even stronger. So we might think that we come to a decision purely rationally, but the relationships that we have and the emotions we have play a large role in how we process information. So that's kind of like the big 
take home message is to be aware of that. And then throughout the book, I have more specific strategies on how we can try to be more mindful of that and try to use the concept of identities to have more productive dialogue with people who think differently than us. And then I also talk about media literacy more broadly as well. I am looking forward to this book and I can't wait to get it next year. Thank you. So Matthew, uh, it's been an honor to, to have you on before I let you go. Can you let the listeners know where they can find you and your work? Yeah. So as we mentioned at the beginning, I am pretty active on threads. Uh, that's definitely where I'm going to be uh, sharing most of my thoughts on research uh, and different things uh, about my work. So yeah, just my name, Matthew Fasciani will pop up on threads uh, my website, MatthewFasciani.com, has a lot of my work too. Uh, I do have a Substack. Again, it's just my name, Matthew Fasciani newsletter, and that newsletter is is useful because uh, I'm I don't post on it very much. I share sometimes when I publish an article, um, but whenever my book is finally available, uh, I'll definitely be sending an email to everyone who's on my newsletter, so they'll be the first to know. So that that's. Those are the ways to to find me for sure. Oh, that's great. Well, Matt, thank you. Uh, thank you again so much for your time. And thank you so much for the work that you do, you know, as a graduate student that studies uh, disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories, your work, you know, has been helpful in my understanding of this topic. So thank you so much. Thank you. Hi there. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Matthew Fasciani's work on misinformation, you can find his articles on the show notes below. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to subscribe and leave me a five-star review. By doing so, you help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories and in politics. If you're listening on any other platform, be sure to subscribe to get more analysis on the conspiratorial mindset. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Thread at The Social Chemist. For my newsletter, you can find me on Substack. So with that being said, take care, be safe, and question everything with logic. <laughs> <laughs>